0: Hi, welcome to Violet Sessions, a podcast for women about culture, creativity, work and lifestyle. I'm Danielle Radoitchin. We are at Violet Bakery in East London with Claire Patak, its owner and my co-host. Today we are talking to the author and fashion journalist Plum Sykes, who studied at Oxford before going on to work as a fashion journalist at British Vogue and then later for Anna Winter at American Vogue. Her best-selling novel, Bergdorf Blondes, was published in 2004, followed by Debutante Divorcees four years later, and she's about to publish her third novel, Party Girls Die in Pearls, a murder mystery set in Oxford, which she describes as Agatha Christie meets Clueless. Here's Plum Sykes on Violet Sessions. Hi Plum. Hello. Thank you for joining us on Violet Sessions. Very happy to be here. How are you doing today? Really good. So, Plum, we're here to talk about your new book. Yes, Party Girls Die in Pearls, yes. which I've read and which is amazing, and it's, I, I loved <laughs> it. It's a real page turner. Oh, um, thank you. Fantastic and, title. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. Um, oh, you're yeah. going to read a little excerpt for us. Yeah. Before we go on to talk yep. about it, would you like to read it now?
1: And then we yep. So um, the book um, Party Girls, Dying Pearls is a comic murder mystery. And it's set in Oxford University in the 1980s, a time of Sloan Rangers and ball gowns. Which is when you were there. Which is when I was there. And um, the story's about um, a first-year student who arrives at Oxford... Kind of really excited about the punting and the pims, and finds one of her classmates dead um, in her first tutorial. She's called and Ursula Flowerbone. She's called I Ursula Flowerbone, and, and, <laughs> and the book is about her solving the case, but it's also about that thing of going to university for the first time and maybe meeting boy that you fancy, and there's a little bit of love. And but the main thing is, is it for her is solving the mystery and writing. Writing about this murder for Charwell newspaper, which is the Oxford University newspaper. And it's
0: got lots of romance and sex and funny, and yeah. it's really, really funny. There's actually
1: no sex in it.
0: But there's quite a lot of references. There's not even on. a snog.
1: <laughs> but she there's a lot there was. of wishing. There's a lot of wishing. Yeah, there's, do you know the other thing? There's not even one swear word in the book. Wow. Because I hate swearing so much on television. Why? I just thought Why? I do not want. I just think, why I really hate watching American, I love American TV shows, but I hate the amount of use of the F word to express all emotions. I just think it's really lazy of the writers, and I just, when you see, when you see the F word written down in black and white, it's very, very strong, and it's not very nice, and I just think, you know, it's all around us in the world, it's really horrible, why put it in a book, make the book nice, you know. Fantastic. <laughs> Let's go, let's go. Then We won't get into the explicit version of iTunes today That's quite good. Anyway, so this little section I'm going to read is um, Ursula has arrived at um, her new college, which is called Christminster College, um, and she um, has arrived at the Porter's Lodge, and she's just about to meet the porter. Okay, so that's the section I'm going to read. The girls followed Otto back out to the gate tower, where a group of returning Christminster students had started to gather. Their ebullient greetings echoed across the quad. This is a huge relief, Nancy told Ursula, looking the male students up and down. Tons of floppy-haired Eton boys. The boys were languid and tall, Ursula observed, and noticeably stru- scruffily dressed with long fringes covering half their faces. Most of the girls had super long, super shiny hair that they swished around like show ponies' tails. Ursula and Nancy caught snatches of their conversation as they walked past. Juby, darling, chow!" squeaked a girl who looked as if she had modelled herself on Princess Diana. She had fluffy, highlighted blonde hair and was wearing a lilac pleated skirt. Her pale pink striped blouse had a high, ruffled collar, which was tightly buttoned around her neck. "'Tiggy! Good holes!' Juby yelled back. "'Yah! Absolutely schizo!' she replied. "'How was Santrop?" "'Wild!' said Juby. "'Completely sick!' "'Is Bunter up?' asked one of the boys. "'Not sure. Apparently Teddy's arriving tomorrow,' replied another. "'He's bringing Ding Dong with him.' "'Yah! Great. I heard India's en route.' "'Who are they?' Nancy asked Otto curiously "'as they headed along the gravel path "'on the west side of Great Lawn towards the Gothic buildings.' The Yars, said Otto. Yars, said Nancy. What are Yars? Oh, sorry, I suppose you've never come across one. Let me explain. They're an easily identifiable English species. They all went to the same posh private schools. They still use their absurd childhood nicknames, and they always say YAR instead of Yes. Hence, Yars. The Yars, Otto said, dominated the Oxford scene. They ran the Oxford Union, the magazines, the both. Anyway, you two, you'll be straight in with the R's, you'll see. They love pretty girls, said Otto. He turned a sharp corner at the bottom of Great Quad and beckoned the girls to follow him along a narrow stone passage. All I can say is, thank God I'm not a Yar, he went on. Ten percent of them are dead before the end of Oxford. What? shrieked Nancy melodramatically. OK, maybe not ten percent, but there was that one in New College who ended up buried under her boyfriend's floorboards last term. Oh, shuddered Nancy, and the third year who overdosed on heroin the day before his Classics finals. How tragic, said Ursula, feeling unnerved. You know what they had in common, said Otto. What, asked Nancy, a note of terror in her voice. They were both, concluded Otto, very posh. And there's going to be a, an
0: audio version available of the book as well, isn't yeah. there? Are
1: yeah. So yeah. reading it? No, I wasn't allowed. It was oh. so annoying.
0: <laughs> That's so annoying. God. You've got some so cool
1: annoying. actress doing it. Well, there. actually, I have got... Well, the funny thing is I've got this really cool actress called Sarah Winter, who was in that show Versailles. Oh, She's yes. read it, so and then the Americans couldn't reach a deal, so they had to get another actress to read it in America. No. Oh, yeah. I know. So there's two versions now. I know it's so silly. So Contractual in America? No, she's English, okay. but she has to do one American accent for the American character.
0: Interesting. And it is.
1: Yeah. Exactly. I love the American character, Nancy.
0: Yeah. She's so great. She's like really gung ho, and she's like the most fashion forward yeah. in the book. Yeah. Um, she and is. sort of a bit feminist, because the toffs seem quite
1: buttoned up. and... Yeah. <laughs> A bit backward in a way whereas Nancy yeah. sort of mentions
0: Betty Friedan <laughs> well I wanted and, to make yeah.
1: um, basically the, so the two main characters are Ursula Flowerbutton and Nancy Feingold and Ursula's an English country girl she's sort of sweetly frumpy and she's she's on a bit of a Cinderella track so she gets more glamorous as the, as the book goes on but Nancy who arrives from you know, New Jersey is already pretty glammed up, and she's got her entire wardrobe from Bloomingdale's, her party wardrobe, and she's got, you know, roller skates and hockey sticks. and you know, a really all funny bit stuff. when
0: um, she's um, Wenty then one of the main male characters, yeah. comments on her jacket, and he says something like, "You look like an astronaut," and she's like, "This is a Norma Kamali duvet, duvet coat." Yeah, <laughs> a Norma Kamali duvet, duvet coats
1: were a huge thing in the <laughs> 80s really, in yeah, New York. Yeah. There are loads
0: of really good 80s references, like yeah. you know, talking about our. Heart, playing on the record player and um it's just it's really well observed obviously And, and then you know you went to Oxford yourself um how much of it is based on your own experience
1: of being there um well a lot of it's based on what it was like for me to be at Oxford in the 80s so you know although although I set it a few years earlier than when I went but things like the sort of huge amount of drinks parties and wearing black tie every night and wearing a ball gown every night. That's all completely my experience. And there's lots and lots of anecdotes in the book that are from reality. Like, for example, there's a a moment when Ursula doesn't understand why she's been invited to like 10 cocktail parties by 10 men she doesn't... 10 boys she doesn't know. And it turns out that the male undergraduates get the freshest photographs they find out the names and they just pick the pretty girls and send invitations to them oh and it's kind of a cattle market and This happened to me. And I remember thinking, oh, this is lovely. I've been invited to all these parties. (laughs) But when I found out that I'd been picked from a photo, a bit like Tinder, let's face it, I remember (laughs) thinking, oh, I'm really glad I've been picked. But do I like the way that I've been picked? You know, and the book, you know, you were talking about the feminism of the American character. Mm. The book is a comedy and it is a joke, but it does have an underlying... um, theme, which it, yeah, is exposing the sexism of the 80s, which was really rife in English universities at that time. And America was a bit ahead. Yeah, I mean, I never had a female tutor in the entire time I was there. I never met a female tutor in the, in the entire time I was at Oxford. And the fact that I never questioned that, you know, now, is weird. Why didn't I say... This is really strange. All my tutors are kind of sixty-five-year-old men, and it was a real boys' club. And um, so, I managed to find a husband, of course. (laughs) Well, um, but but I think that um,
0: it's it's funny funny when how much long how how soon after leaving that thought your mind?
1: The feminism it didn't thing. cross my mind. No. That's really the awful thing. It really, until I, until I lived in America, because I think <clears throat> England is still quite behind America in terms of male-female equality. And I actually, at that time in my life, when I was sort of 18, 19, I didn't understand what feminism meant. I thought it meant horrible, overpowering women. And I didn't realise it just meant equality between the sexes. It was much less sort of you know it was a really sensible thing but it was it was so um it was so vilified by men and it was the, the picture that was painted of feminist feminists was of these kind of bra, bra, bra burning you know Germaine greer's glorious Steinem's, and they were they were portrayed as absolutely terrifying women and none of us wanted to be one so actually in the book um when there's a, there's a moment when Nancy, who is the American character, says, I don't understand why all the clubs in Oxford are only open to men. And um, the, one of the English girls says, well, you know, no, no girls would want to have a girls-only club. And Nancy says, well, what about feminism? And this girl says to her, oh, being a feminist is weird. It's like being a vegetarian. <laughs> Which, at the time, vegetarians were really uncool and considered really cranky and really weird. So I've made lots of jokes about it, but it is to make the point that it was a very sexist time. But and I don't all... like being serious about things.
0: <laughs> yeah no, it's all done in a very nice, um light hearted way. And obviously you have daughters yourself, two daughters. I do, yeah. Um the eldest of I whom mean, called Ursula. Ursula like, right, exactly so I named the, the character
1: book. after Ursula, my daughter exactly. Um,
0: and I suppose, how do you feel about them now growing up? Do you feel like they're going to be going to a world where uh, feminism has advanced and changed and it is more about equality and not seen as some weird vegetarian type?
1: I think it's completely different. I think it's completely different now. I think it's much better, will be much better for them, like, in the workplace and stuff. I still think there is a lot of latent hidden sexism. Um, For example you know i had one incident at my children's um Gosh, I'm not sure if I should say... It. Well, there was, there was a moment when I was trying to get Ursula into a football club and I was told that she couldn't join the club because there weren't any facilities for girls. And I was like, well, you know, there's a goalpost and a football and a pitch. It's fine. All the boys are playing. And then I was told, oh, the other schools wouldn't like it very much if she played football. And in the end, I did say to them, are you telling me my daughter can't play football because she's a girl? And they said, no, no, we're not saying that. But we just... think it would be really inconvenient. So it's quite interesting that trying to have your girl play football in England is a real battle. And actually I then started looking into this whole girls football thing and it's one of the football's one of the last male bastions and they do not like it when girls start playing football. But in India all the school girls play football.
2: In America as well.
1: And in America. Yeah, so we're all we're all going it's all going to end up in that direction but it's yeah, just it's England's Shopping. very, very old-fashioned in many ways, I think, mm. which yeah. is nice in some ways, yeah, but in it is, other it's ways, it's charming and it's, it's charming. charming.
0: But I like the way in the book as well. You play up to the whole that kind of thing that um, that cliched idea of what Americans think of the UK as being like that kind of slightly Harry Potter-esque, yeah. you know, lovely country lanes and yeah. cute cottages and everything small yeah. and the and toffs and how they're slightly backward but really charming and a bit yeah. outrageous. And um, well,
1: the toffs the aren't meant to be backward, but, but they're dated. Do you know what I mean? They are really. Old fashioned, and I, and I still think that the English sort of upper class male, and actually some of the real middle class men who go to English public schools, English private schools, you know, have very dated attitudes towards women.
2: Can you just explain to the
1: Americans what a
0: TOF
1: is? <laughs> oh, a TOF <tough laughs> okay? would oh, be being too um, crude? <laughs> a, a TOF um, is an aristocrat or an upper class person. And it, it it's it comes from I think like toffee nose, so their nose would be in the air. Um, but it's a class, it's a class thing. It means it means that they're posh or upper class.
2: Very up, upper class. Oh,
1: no. Well, not very upper class necessarily. I mean, there's like degrees. Like <laughs> so you that's wouldn't that's necessarily one, say, oh, the Duke of Beaufort's a toff, in a funny way, because. He's sort of so posh that he's above that, do you know what I mean? But you might say about someone who's a little bit arrogant and okay. posh, oh, they're a toff. Yeah, and someone who's a toff probably is a bit of a snob Yeah, as well. Whereas, yes, the Duke of Beaufort, he may well not be a snob. He might be the most open-hearted man you know you could possibly wish for. God, <laughs> very
0: nice. <laughs> um,
1: about, so what gave you the idea for
0: writing this book? Because you've already you'd um, already written two novels, yeah, which were slightly different in their theme. They were yeah. more set in about socialites in America. Yeah. Um, so, what was the idea behind? Where did the, the um, idea for this come from?
1: Well, the other two books were... I sort of see them now as kind of social comedies, and but also romantic comedies. So they were kind of a, a melding of those two genres in a way. And um, I think I always wanted my third book. I thought... I thought I've done the romantic comedy thing, and the romantic comedy only has one ending, <laughs> which is that they, they all get together in the end. And so I think I'd, I felt like I'd written that story, and I felt like if I did a murder mystery, then the ending was much more open for both me, the writer, and for the reader. Like we really, we really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, obviously I know who did it, and I had to know who did it right from the beginning when I was writing it, but the reader really doesn't know who did it. And the and this ending could be any, any one of, say, six or seven suspects, which makes for a more satisfying, fun read. Oh, so, Is it aimed at the same audience? Yeah, not the same um, are you I generally aim different them people? at an audience. I don't really think of it like that. I'm more just thinking to myself, is this going to be a really good read? So, again, it was me thinking... Is writing a murder mystery for me going to be a really good read? And actually, if I'd just done it as a murder mystery and not brought in the social comedy, for me it probably wouldn't have been the best read I could deliver. But by mixing in the social comedy and the <laughs> murder mystery, I think that I've delivered them the sort of Plum Sykes thing with a bit of an Agatha Christie or a P.D. James kind of element in there. Because it is really fun to try and puzzle out the murder. It's really fun, but, it is, but then it's also, really
0: un, unpredictable as well. Like, I definitely wouldn't have guessed it. Oh, good.
1: <laughs> I know. So far, no one's guessed it. So far, no one's guessed it. And actually, I had one review on Amazon, which was quite funny because it kind of it kind of complained and it said, "I couldn't guess who the I couldn't guess who the murderer was." And I thought, "Oh, great, that's a really that's the whole point." Um, but I also I also wrote it because. Um, I just thought that, that writing about Oxford would be a great setting. I thought writing about the 80s now, it's kind of like the moment where, yeah. you know, it's not too far away, it's still in our minds, but we've got a sort of nostalgia for it. And I didn't want to write about Oxford in the present day or do a murder mystery in the present day because um, I didn't want to really write about Facebook and social media. I didn't want that to get into the whole murder mystery thing you know i wanted to keep it as simple as i could so i set it in the past when life was just a little bit simpler how long did it take you to write it took about it's taken about two years And what's your process for
0: writing for people for any aspiring um, novelists oh i know they'll want to know yeah what your routine um, is
1: well i'd say like a novel to, to write a novel my my advice to anyone is is um <laughs> To know that a novel doesn't come to you in a whole a piece, you know, it, it, it's little pieces of it come to you. And it is, I was saying this to Claire earlier writing a is a bit like being in a trance or being in a dream, because you really do have to get into that place of imagination and sort of total creativity. Having said that, I did loads and loads of research for this book so that I had it it was it's very grounded in reality and real facts because it's such an unreal world that all the details need to be completely spot on to make it believable. Um and I would just say writing a novel be a journalist first always helps. Train as a writer. You know, people who just say, Oh, I'm gonna sit down and write a novel out of the blue very often don't manage it because it is such a hard thing to do but if you've had any writing training it would make it much much easier and then you just write little bits of it at a time um to start with and that you gradually you know you piece it all together like a puzzle
0: did you have moments when you got really frustrated with it and what do you do on those days when you have writer's block or just you know going crazy Um, with lack of inspiration
1: um, well, again, I was saying to Claire earlier that I, I never really sit down at my desk to write without knowing what I'm going to write. So I never sit down with a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen thinking, oh, what should I write today? I've always done my research first and I've always decided what I'm writing before I sit down at the desk. So let's say it's Tuesday morning and I always write in the mornings. I probably would have... Where do you write in your house? In, um, well, actually, I've got an office... I've got an office now that's separate to my house, but it's very light and it's very um, kind of serene and has good views and stuff. Um, But, um, yeah, so if I was writing on a Tuesday morning, probably on the Monday, I'd have either done lots of research or decided, okay, I will write a thousand words of chapter one tomorrow and this is what's going to happen and I've plotted out what's going to happen and you always make a plan of every chapter and a plan of the whole book and the planning organized. is crucial because
0: the plot is quite convoluted did yeah. you find it hard to how did you keep track of well, I, all the different
1: threads or did you have postcards? I, yeah, I, I had lots of postcards uh-huh. and I mapped the whole thing out um and I made sure that all the clues you know, were dotted throughout the book and I had to have clues that were real clues and clues that were fake clues. You know, I love a fake clue that (laughs) looks like it's a clue and it isn't. Um, And, um, you know, I, I, I read lots and lots of Agatha Christie books while I was writing this book to try and figure out how you do plot a murder mystery. And it's really all about... You start at the end as the writer and you know who did it and you work back as to why they did it and how did they do it. And then you can do that. And then, of course, what you've got to do is... Write the story, which leads up to the discovery of the murder, and send the reader off in completely the wrong direction at every possible turn. So it's, it's a real, um, it's really fun, intellectual is challenge to read it and be kind of about
0: that, Yeah, and the yeah. clues
1: are all there. Like when, if you went back and read it again, and you've read it once, you would find every single clue actually from page like three. It's all there, or you could work it out, but you hopefully won't work it out the first time. <laughs>
0: And
1: it's it's really is, it the
0: start, is it the first in a series? It's you, the first the in idea? a series, yeah.
1: Mm. Mm. Because again, I love, I love reading series. I love reading books of series. So I love reading P.G. Woodhouse. <clears throat> I love reading um, his Blanding's novels and rereading the character of Lord Emsworth, who I think is one of the funniest characters in English literature. And I don't mind that he's the same in every book. I actually really like that. And I... I, I suppose I sort of thought, why don't I try and try and do that because it really satisfies yeah. me as a know, reader. I've, so why I've don't I try P. and give
0: G. that to people? I read it. Uh, I, I could tell that in some of the you know, the characters and their names, and they did feel a bit Woodhouseian. Oh, in my book. Yeah. Oh, no, did, I, I did you? Think, oh, good, I, I, that's well, Obviously, I thought of Agatha Christie and P. D. James, but yeah, yeah. P. G. Woodhouse definitely crossed my mind. Um, yeah. And so you, you studied history at Oxford. And then, I did. so yeah. I, just because we're I going back to what you were saying about being a good get journalism experience and be a good yeah. writer. Um, and then, what led you into fashion journalism from that?
1: Um, so, I'd always loved fashion. My mother was a fashion designer, um, and so I, I actually grew up really surrounded by fashion and books because my my father's family were all kind of literary and writers and photographers and things like that. So, when I was kind of searching around aimlessly trying to figure out what on earth I was going to do with my life, um, I had, while I was at Oxford, I had written for some of the um, student newspapers and I'd always written articles that were slightly like fashion writing, but I didn't actually know that was a real job. Um, and I was quite sort of naive about the world of work when I was there and a lot of the careers advice was, you know, to become a lawyer or go into corporate finance, which was like the did hedge they fund. Did give you advice then? Yeah, they did, Even but it was to a be girl. a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was a whole career service. But, um, you know, if you want to go into media, you have to kind of make your own way. And... Um when I, when I got out of university, and I temped for about a year trying to think, what am I going to do? And in the end, actually, my sister Lucy, my twin sister who was working at Hoppers and Queen said, Plum, you'd love working on a magazine. And I thought, I don't want to do the same thing as my twin. That's a bit sad. But anyway, I did go and be work experience at British Vogue and I actually just stayed. So that's how I, that's how I got my job. And that's when I realised, oh, there is a career called a fashion writer. And had you always been a good writer? Like when um, you were at school and at university? Um, well, no, this is the thing, is that I always loved making up stories, but I actually didn't think I was very good at it. So I had very low confidence with quite high ability. <laughs> but I didn't value my you know, what I could do, really. And, and, and I, I, was, I was just very underconfident. Well, it, it changed, like, to go back to what I was saying about being trained. If you're trained and you have got that ability, then your confidence rises. And when I went to... I worked at British Vogue for... Um, three, four years as an assistant and then as a sort of very junior fashion writer. And then I moved to American Vogue in 1997. And that was really... My, my true training was in America and you know if you're trained to be a journalist at Vogue in New York you know you're going to do the best that you can and that, yeah. that gave me a lot of confidence And Did you have a mentor? At well my mentor was really titles. Anna Winter, yeah. and when I um, I remember I started writing a column for American Vogue that was a sort of um, joke column about an uptown girl and a downtown girl and they sent emails to each other and this was at the beginning of you know email had just come in and Anna Winter said to me, Oh, Plum, that could be a book. This could be a book. And I remember thinking, Oh, really? Wow, that's kind of amazing. That's a good idea. And I never, ever would have thought myself, Oh, I could turn this into a book. But, but that, that was actually the basis for my first book, of Blondes. And I think that, yeah, if you have a mentor or someone who's encouraging you and says, I have confidence in you, and if it is someone like Anna Winter, it gives you a lot of confidence. If you have a female tutor, for example. Yeah, if I had a female <laughs> tutor, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. What is it like working for Anna Winter? Um, well, <laughs> this is like the million-dollar question, isn't it? Because everyone wants to know. Um, she is very, very um, sort of exacting. Um, expects very high standards she's very very clear about what she wants I personally think she's an absolutely brilliant manager of people and she has a very um, you know her image as a sort of very um, frosty and intimidating person is um, it it doesn't really allow people to understand why she's been so successful because actually if she was really frosty and intimidating the whole time no one would work there you know but actually she's very very fair and the best thing about her is that she, she knows exactly what she wants and she can communicate exactly what she wants to the people who work for her. So it's very easy to work for her because you know in about 10 seconds what you need to do and you get a yes or a no in about five seconds. So I just think she's an amazing manager of creative people and it, it's very hard to manage you know, people like me and people like Andre Leon Talley and Grace Coddington and she's managed to manage all those people for many, many years and... I think that's her great skill, actually. What do you think she saw in you that made her want to hire you? You would have to ask her that.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. I'm just I don't to know email I her. Do. Now. <laughs> <laughs> do you think um, part of it was because you were British and she was bringing over some British people to the magazine? Um Funnily you, enough, that uh, writing in like that. She's a good spot. of talent. She
1: liked. She liked my sense of humour. I, I do know she liked my sense of humour, but I de- no. definitely don't think that she hires people because they're English because actually one of her big things is she, she doesn't want American Vogue to be a sort of British magazine in America so if you suggest too many English stories she says that's too English <laughs> so there's a real mix of you know people who work there and nationalities who work there and I think it's all about the mix, it keeps it interesting young, old, women, men straight, gay, trendy square, you know it's all about mixing it up the whole time if everyone was you know a white British female writer it would be very very boring how did it compare to and what was it like at British Vogue in comparison? Oh British Vogue was for me it was really good fun because it was you know it was my first job and it was the moment when I really thought oh this is what I want to do and this really fits with me um, and I, I, I worked for Izzy Blow she was my first boss and that was incredible fun um, and we did an amazing shoot with Stephen Meisel when I was working with Izzy. That was great. And I ended up being photographed by him, so that was a perk. Um, but I don't have any of the prints. I still want to get a print. No, he never gives anyone prints.
0: It was like the first grunge shoot,
1: wasn't it? No, that was the Kate Moss one with Corinne Day. Oh, yeah. But it was, it was really famous, that shoot, because we photographed Stella Tennant. I think and it was famous became very it, famous. It wasn't just
0: because of her. I think it was because it had a bunch of girls in it who weren't models. So oh, yes, Stella so I so. you Sorry. Honor Fraser
1: um has sunglasses on now. <something> so <laughs> um, yeah, it was a, it was a very cool. It was a very cool photo shoot. It was, was it like, like cool being cool photographed photo by
0: Stephen Meisel?
1: amazing I've never looked better
0: <laughs> you do look amazing in my hair Garen
1: Garen did my hair who did Audrey Hepburn's hair oh my god amazing he your was hair amazing. Look
0: amazing like really long straight oh my god it center was parting, my hair was like
1: down to my elbows who styled that shoot Oh, so Izzy Blow and Joe McKenna styled it together, oh, and as a result, they fought about it violently. Why did they fight? Because well, you can't really have two fashion editors on a <laughs> no. shoot. quite
0: big personalities. Yeah, that's a bit. They, they
1: both thought they were the fashion editor. Yeah. and they sort of both were, and it was it was very funny though. It was good fun. It was really good fun. Did
0: you was did you sort of become famous in the UK in London after
1: that? Was no. it quite a weird feeling being? <laughs> <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think. Um, I don't know. If you have your picture in a magazine once or twice, I don't think you're famous. Do you know what I mean? I think mm. it was just fun. I think it's, you know, when you're in your 20s and a famous photographer takes your picture, yeah. it's kind of flattering did and fun. Did you know how to pose? I always but, think that
0: must just be so hard. Like how No, you but know Stephen to Mizell
1: told you exactly what to do. He was like a film director. Really? What's it? every Every hand. single, the hand, the really hair, helpful. the eyes, the, everything. That's why his photos are so amazing. And also you became friends with Alexander McQueen
0: when you were at British Vogue.
1: Yeah, through Izzy Blow. So um, Izzy, I mean, I, I, do, I do put a lot down to Izzy in my career because she introduced me to all these fashion designers. So Alexander, Hussein Chalayan, Bella Freud, you know, these people who were like the really, really trendy designers of the 90s, not only in London, but in the world. You know, they were really, really cool. So when I moved to American Vogue... Um, I could bring in those designers and work with them because I'd worked with them closely in London. And, and, with, and with Izzy, really, we'd all become friends. It wasn't just a work thing. It was like we had really good relationships with them. Um, and Alexander was obviously, you know, a complete riot <laughs> in every way. Because Isabella every way.
0: sort of is credited with discovering him, but you helped him a lot as well, didn't you, by getting him into
1: the um, magazine? She, she discovered him. She, she helped him a great deal, and she introduced him to so many people. Um, and I mean, I suppose when I went to American Vogue, had he? I think he had been in the magazine, but I think I did get him in more and made. I was able to put him into pieces that made him a bit more, a bit more mainstream. Though still, he was still the avant-garde in the mainstream. But he, um, he was quite difficult as well to work with. And I do remember there was. One time when Anna got absolutely, you know, fed up with him because um, he was going to be photographed by Penn, and um, Irving Penn, Irving Penn, yeah, <laughs> and pen. he sort of didn't get out of bed or something, or he didn't, he didn't, he sort of didn't show up, and I think. <laughs> that was a really low moment I love that not showing up when you're being photographed and And I also remember another time when when he was meant to to, I was meant to go to the Met Ball with Alexandra and with Claire Danes and he was dressing both of us and he didn't show up (laughs) he said he was too scared to get on the Concorde (laughs) and so I went to the Met Ball with Claire Danes and had a really good time (laughs) one of my favourite favourite
0: actresses yeah it was really funny (laughs) Um, and so you, were in New- so you were in New York working at American Vogue and your Princess sister Lucy was also in New York at the same yep. time. This is like late 90s now that we're talking about. And yep. you guys were kind of celebrated as these New York it girls. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, you were featured on the cover of a New York Times uh, fashion supplement. Um, yep. I think, and you walked, you, you walked in a... Prada runway show? I
1: did, I did the Prada show um, when I was still living in London, actually, oh, right. and I also was in two Alexander McQueen shows, his first show <laughs> you know and the Birds like, was show. Was that after
0: the Stephen Mizell shoot? Um, Are you in the Birds
1: show? I can't show? remember if it was before, uh, it was all around the same time, it was yeah. all around the same time, but, you know, doing things like that, which, you know, being in Alexander show was definitely through Izzy. Yeah was really really good it mm-hmm. sounds odd to say as a fashion journalist because it I understood what it's like to be a model it's actually bloody boring most of the time and really really exhausting really exhausting and really annoying when people say to you can you put white contact lenses into your eyes so that you look like an alien oh yeah that was that
0: was the
1: and I actually said I'm really sorry but I can't do that and so I was the only one who didn't wear the white contact lenses because I was too scared I Is thought I hard? wouldn't be able to it, see how, how do you do that catwalk <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that the
0: kind of whole idea yeah, they Kat couldn't was then see was quite... the other
1: girls. They couldn't <laughs> see. Because well, they had those contact lenses in their eyes. <laughs> right. well, they had these white <laughs> ones which just had a little hole in the middle. I mean, oh they weren't God. contact lenses. They were like like a pinhole.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but he was often accused of misogyny, wasn't he, Queen? Do you think that was there was an element what, of that? hating women? Yeah, in a way. I think know, that's creating, not true. Like shoes, he's they couldn't role. walk in. Or yeah. oh, but I think
1: I think to say he's a misogynist about sort of any fashion designer is a bit odd because mm. they're making things for women. But no, I, I would say that he purposely set out to shock and he, he would not have had a fig if the Daily Mail said he's a misogynist because he got the cover of the Daily Mail. And he did it all on purpose. And he, at a very, very, very young age, and he was, what, 25, 26, 27 when he was doing this, he understood the media and he understood that If he was going to be a successful fashion designer, he was only going to get backing if he was famous. And he got all those newspaper covers by putting those girls in manacles and things. But he loved all those girls. (laughs) So, I mean, he was a kind of... He was a whole mess of contradictions. But I actually think when, you know, when he made my wedding dress for me, you know, he couldn't have made me look more beautiful and he beautiful. loved doing things like that and, and the stuff in the shows was for show when he made your wedding dress did you tell him what you wanted or was it no. more like he was like it says what you're wearing he just drew an amazing Created drawing. I, I was like, oh, I don't. Luckily, I don't need to be involved in this. You know, I just left it up to him. But I did have nine fittings and he he made the he made the towel out of silk taffeta oh, yeah. which I thought was a bit extravagant. And then drew on it with black marker pen and cut it up with his scissors and stuff. <laughs> and he was just very kind of um, he just did it in a, in a different way. He did it how he wanted. And I remember we had one fitting and my mother came to the fitting and Alexander came and had this beautiful white dress on. He came in with a massive, great Big Mac from McDonald's. And my mom was just thinking, don't go anywhere near her with that Big Mac in your hand. You know.
2: Did you have to have many people carrying the train?
1: Or did you just oh, let it drag? I had like six you... bridesmaids amazing. <laughs> yeah, but no, you did have to carry the train. It was very very long. Mm. It was very long. I think it was like 9 feet long or something. It was really beautiful though. Beautiful. So mm. you must have gone to some amazing parties
0: and met some really interesting people in New York when you were there, mm. right? Cuz you were oh, totally yeah. on the scene. So give yeah. us a taste of what it was like.
1: Um, well, um God. I, know. <laughs> I mean, I mean the 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 thing about new the thing about like going there and working for Vogue was that um it was like a key to the city, you know, and it, it, was a, it was a free pass. It was like the golden ticket to the Chocolate Factory. Um, and so right from the beginning, I met a lot of very interesting people, whether they were, you know, fashion designers or film directors or whoever. And Anna would have a lot of dinners and things at her house and invite a lot of people. And, you know, I've met all sorts of people like Baz Luhrmann or... Um,
0: isn't he a na- you know, Isabella something.
1: Rossellini, or all these people at you know just at casual dinners because New York is full of those people, and they all, you know, were very drawn to Anna because she's such a sort of interesting person, and Anna would invite me to you know lots of dinners and things. But also, American Vogue is is it's such an entree to everything. So actually, if there was someone I wanted to meet. And no one I knew knew them. I'd just ring them up and say, it's Plum from Vogue. And can I come and see you? They said, yeah, great. Fantastic. You know, they... they I mean, one thing I learned from New York is that if, if you want to know someone, just ring them up and say, I want to know you. And it's fine. Whereas in England, everyone waits, waits to be introduced. It can take 10 years. <laughs> I think one thing that's really struck
0: me about you, because you worked really hard the whole time you were there. Mm. You know, a lot of the time, and mm. stuff I've read about you is... I know. I was full time on as a sort of it girl, party girl on the scene. But you were working yeah. really hard, and you seemed to have a really uh, a strong work Well, ethic. it was funny
1: because I was I was talking about this with someone the other day. So I, you know, if you are full time on American Vogue, it was it was in at seven thirty every morning and out at seven or eight every night. And then, but then to a party or an event that I was kind of covering. And I think what happened, the thing, the thing that happened to me that was kind of you know, hilarious really was that my job was to report on the it girls. So I was out at those parties every night drinking Perrier because I don't really drink. Um, And um, with my notebook and at all those weddings and things. But then because of the Lucy factor, my twin sister, you know, who was also often at the parties and things. What does the Lucy factor um, mean? You mean? Lucy Sykes, my twin. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the Lucy because of factor? Because being a twin and being English okay. and being twins and all of that in New York and being twenty-seven, we—you stood out. She was at Harper's, Harper's Bazaar. So we, you know, you imagine a couple of twins. They're English. They—they they all thought we were terribly posh that we lived in a castle in England with butlers, and we were like, no, no, we're absolutely broke. But that they didn't care about that. Um, we looked like. We looked like a pair of It Girls as well. But we were photographing... You know, Lucy was photographing them for Bazaar and I was writing about them for Vogue. But then we became written about as well. So we were never as famous, if you like, as the It Girls we were writing about. I mean, I was writing about, like... Erin Lauder and Lauren Santa Domingo and those girls Mm. who to me were real kind of of, powerhouse socialites and that was all material
0: for your off Yeah, but but but
1: I wasn't one of, I really, I wasn't one of them and and I didn't like the It Girl tag because I thought I always thought of an It Girl as someone who didn't have a job that was my definition was they didn't have a job and they socialised. you need that as a writer Mm. to have
0: that pulled back quality where you're always slightly removed from
1: what's happening and you're an observer rather than becoming... Um, yes, I definitely think mm. you do. And I, um, when I would go to all those benefits and parties and weddings in New York, um, I found that if I went to them and I was reporting on those events, I really, really enjoyed them because I could talk to everyone and I could ask them what they thought. And if I actually wasn't working, I found them really boring because I didn't like just socialising. I liked having something to do. I liked being able to say to someone what are you wearing and where did you get it and who's your best friend and what are they saying and what are they doing and all of that. that was, and I still do that, really. Mm. I still do that. And you became engaged to the artist
0: Damien Loeb. Lowe. Oh, yes, Loeb. I did. <laughs> that, that made you more famous, if you were famous already at that point. Um, and how did that feel to be written about in the papers?
1: Well, until the engagement broke up, I thought it was all quite good fun. <laughs> it, you know, when, when, I, when I had the broken engagement, it wasn't, it wasn't very fun to be written about. But to be honest, I can't actually remember... I can't really remember them writing very much about about it. It wasn't like, you know, Beyoncé and Jay-Z breaking up.
0: Well, you did look fabulous, though, in the photos. It was quite sort of Kate Moss, Johnny Depp,
1: 90s, yeah. zero glam look. Mm. Um, Mm.
0: And at what point did you stop all that and move away from that world and think, this is enough, I'm doing something else now?
1: Well, I haven't really ever said that because I still work for Vogue. Because so, that world is my job. So I suppose moving from new york to london in like 2006 when i do that oh because when i when i got my first book deal i just felt like i had to have a break from new york in order to write it so i moved to london because i wanted to go somewhere really quiet (laughs) <laughs> and I remember did thinking you feel oh, like you didn't want to have distractions. The yeah, distraction I thought because I didn't to. know anyone in London at that time because I left. I was so young when I left, and I, you know, I had a few friends here, but not very many. So I came here, and I just, I rented a really sweet flat near Sloane Square, and I just sat there and I wrote my book. And it was like, it was like a sort of break from the madness of Manhattan, and it was a really, really good thing to do. Um, and I, maybe, maybe that was the time when I sort of. Yeah, my life changed much more then because then I decided to stay in England and I didn't really want to live in New York full-time. And when you had finished
0: writing Bergdorf Blondes, did you yeah. have a sense that it was going to be the
1: success that it became? No. No. I had absolutely no idea. I had no idea at all. I just turned it... I was really, really, really shocked. Um, I was really shocked when I got a good review, to be honest. <laughs> Must have been really exciting when you were on the New York Times bestseller that was list. was so exciting. But it was it was so exciting because I had no expectations and I had nothing to lose and it's that's the best. Did, did Anna time Winter to,
0: write you a a note when, when you when that
1: happened? Um, she I, I, she didn't write me a note but um, I, she was very very pleased about it. She was very very pleased about it. I mean, you know, she was when I actually got my book deal. She did ring me up to say congratulations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she. What, what's great about her is that she encourages you to do your own thing so I was, I was still working there and I still work there now but she's very very happy for everyone to write their books or create their museum shows or whatever like you know Hamish Bowles has just done this incredible show at Chatsworth yeah. you know while a working at Vogue yours, right? he's a really good friend of mine and you know that only makes Hamish Bowles a more interesting person to have on Vogue yeah. you know she, she never says oh you've got to sit in the office and just do one thing she wants people to do lots and lots of different things
2: so she's a mentor she in is, that
1: way. So yeah. A true mentor. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love that. I mean, yeah. t- Hamish also, he curated the Jackie O show at the Met for her yeah. as well. So he's, you know, he does lots of things.
0: Um, so now you're based in the UK. And yeah. What, what, what are the next, what, what's, what plans do you have for yourself for the next oh, year or so? I suppose you've got well, a book tour coming I'm, up.
1: Yeah, so I'm going on book tour in America for two and a half weeks, ten de- cities. How do you deal with the child care around that? Do you well, you take the kids my with husband you? and a nanny. Yeah. Um, and obviously I absolutely hate the idea of leaving my children yeah. for two and a half yeah. weeks. So I haven't left them for that long since, you know, ever really, to be honest. But... Having said that, I do think it's really important for girls to see that their mothers have a career and a job. Skype. And Skype. FaceTime. And actually, I was going to get my um, 10-year-old her own phone so that she can ring me while I'm away. Mm. Um, and I might get the 6-year-old a phone too. They can have like a pay-as-you-go phone so they can ring me. That's what I was thinking of doing. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to go on book tour. Then I'm going to launch the book in England. And then I'm going to go on a nice holiday in july for three weeks back to america and just have a you know have a really nice summer and um when do you start the next book i'm gonna and i'm gonna start the next book in september but i also want to write some more um i want to do a bit more vogue you know in the next year because i haven't been able to do so much
0: are you contracted to do a certain amount for them
1: um i'm not contracted to do a certain amount but i do have an exclusive contract with them so i can't write for anyone else Um, which is fine because when I have any time I only really have time to write for them Um, do you have any ambitions that you haven't achieved yet oh um (laughs) god I can't think of it. that's a pretty nice Um, place to be um I suppose I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, because I, I, sp- I mean, obviously I'd love to have a trilogy of these books. I mean, that, that is my ambition is to have a trilogy, so instead of just having one novel to have a, you know, a set of three, but really my ambitions um, you know, my ambition is for my daughter to pass 11 plus. <laughs> Actually, you know, I'm, I'm very focused on my children, Really.
0: It sounds
1: sensible. Love very it. boring, very housewife
0: bo- kind of thing. That's boring. boring. Plum, thank you so much. Um
2: we have we're oh, kind welcome. of nearing the end here and I wanted yep. to ask you my my question which I ask all of oh, our okay. guests. <laughs> yeah. Which is um, cake related obviously oh, yeah. what, um, cake we're questions. sitting here in the bakery and, and we always like to know what your favourite cake is in the world and it can be anything you know dessert or it doesn't have to actually be sponge you
0: just have to be well, able to make it you Which the you, funny yeah, thing is, which is I can make anything you can. <laughs> maybe not this dragon cake that so yeah. you showed me on Instagram
1: um are you a fan I of cake first of all? You, I absolutely you, love you cake. Okay, I really, you know, <laughs> <laughs> let's get that straight. I love you. cake and I love puddings mm. and I do have a bit of a sweet tooth. And I'm very a, skinny so of, I can a, eat any I want. There's a lot of high tea, like some tea action in, um, party Ooh. girls dime pearls, isn't there? They're sort of having tea and cake. Yeah. Colum, there's, yeah. There's Bourbon biscuits. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, well actually yeah, as a as a teenager and as a child, you know, the kind of biscuit cookie situation in England was yeah. really, really dire. And we yeah. had these things called custard creams and aubons, <laughs> yeah. which you can still get, but they do taste like a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, but I put them in the book because it's so sort of nostalgic for me. Mm. Um, but also, on the subject of nostalgia, I love a Victoria Sponge because my um, nanny, who was called Winnie, used to be the most amazing baker. Mm-hmm. And she used to make the most amazing Victoria sponges um, that sort of, you know, popped up in the arga. Like a dream. I I've, I really can't bake very well, but also my mother would make amazing Victoria sponge, and she would put whipped cream and strawberries in the middle or fresh on the top. Strawberries. Fresh strawberries and fresh cream, and to me that is the ultimate cake. Is that is that sponge with the fresh cream and fresh strawberries? That's the perfect answer because it's one of my favorite things
2: to make, is and it? I didn't know about them in America, and so I've only learned really? about Victoria oh, really? sponge. Yeah, we don't have Victoria sponge. Oh. That's no. so strange. Isn't yeah, it? we didn't have it. Do you have any so, sponge cakes there? Not yeah, really. yeah, we have loads of sponge. We have great sponge chiffon and all kinds oh, yes. of, you know, lots of icing and, and things cakes. like that. But not yeah. this sort of. And we do like a strawberry shortcake, which is sort of similar mm. with with whipped cream and strawberries, yeah. and then this sort of spongy thing. But um, but no, so Victoria sponge, great, love it. <laughs> it's so delicious we did it here it? too. So and know actually, <laughs> yesterday
1: I had this delicious pudding, which was sort of it gave me an inspiration so it was it was like an eaten mess but it was like the fresh cream and the strawberries and the meringues. but mm. she put basil on it and it was oh, so nice because it's like a tart kind and of so I thought actually if you put basil, good, basil on top even. it would be really good yeah on a, on a um, Victoria a sponge strawberry basil Victoria sponge yeah yeah delicious. thanks, Try for, it. The, thanks for the tip
0: <laughs> alright Plum thank you so much for joining oh, us welcome, on Violet guys. Sessions it was really great having you it was really you. good fun thank you I love your jumper too
1: i
2: have to get a photo JW of that Anderson oh well, perfect he's so yeah, good exactly. the corner I love is he around the corner yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. taking a photo of it now shout out shout yeah. out to
0: JW Anderson who is amazing
2: yeah in
1: his studios right around the corner mm. you know what I love about it it's like it's, it's long dirty but it's sort of you know I love wearing sweaters and jeans, but it's like a tiny bit smart. Do you know what I mean? Just a tiny bit. No, it's great.
0: Anyway, thank you so much, Plum.
2: Thank you. That was Plum Sykes talking to Danielle Rodoitchin and me, Claire Patak, on Violet Sessions. Please subscribe to Violet Sessions, leave comments, and follow us. We are on Instagram as at Violet Sessions, and the show is a co-production of In Talks With and Wargi Productions. Thanks for listening.